When Jesus launched his public ministry, he did so in dramatic fashion. He performed miracles. He healed people from their diseases. He set people free from spiritual bondage. He called 12 very different kinds of men to be his disciples, men ranging from fishermen to tax collectors. And as he started out, he shared a very basic yet very exciting message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in response to all of this, people flocked to Jesus because they sensed that God was doing something new. And in those early months of his ministry, when Jesus had gathered a crowd of curious, interested, excited people, that's when he gave his very first sermon. A message with new insights about the kingdom of God. And since he preached this message up on a mountain, it became known as the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor and Bible commentator John Stott wrote that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known, least understood, and least obeyed part of Jesus' teaching. And I think he may be right, because I'm not sure we take these words of Jesus seriously enough. And I believe that's because this sermon is an invitation to be different, not weird, different. Different in our character and in the way that we love. Different in our devotion to God and to other people. Different because we choose to order our lives based on the values of the kingdom of God and not based on the values of our culture. And living differently in that way isn't always easy. And I truly believe that our lives and the life of our church And our impact on the world can be vastly different if we let the words of this sermon guide our behavior. Because this foundational message from Jesus explains how we can step into the adventure of living by faith. I think we're going to be on an interesting journey together over the next several weeks as we explore what Jesus has to say to us. And to set the stage, we need to begin before the beginning. So we're actually going to start in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 23, and see what leads up to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. And sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. As Jesus started his ministry, 
he was waiting for just the right moment to preach that pivotal first sermon, and now the time has arrived. When he sees these crowds of spiritually hungry people, he heads up into the mountains to find a spot where he can preach. And I believe that he goes up into the mountains for two distinct reasons. The first one is practical. Following him is going to be a little bit inconvenient. And he wants people to be interested enough in what he has to say that they're willing to go out of their way to listen to him. And the second reason is theological. Jesus came to fulfill the Jewish law and to usher in a new relationship between God and mankind. And therefore, throughout his ministry, he often provides his teaching in physical settings that recall key moments of Jewish history. And so... Since the original Jewish law was given by God on a mountaintop, Jesus now goes up into a mountaintop to present the Christian ideal. He wants to show God's people that He is recreating and redefining their past in order to give them a new vision of the kingdom of God. He wants to give them a new understanding of how faithful men and women can and should live. And to drive home the importance of this message that he is about to proclaim, Jesus sits down. He sits down. Now, we're very used to having people stand when they preach. But in the first century, all significant pronouncements were made while seated. A king would sit on his throne to issue his edicts. A governor would sit in a chair that represented the authority of his office when he made his legal rulings. A rabbi would sit in a chair when he offered the most authoritative, significant teaching from the Word of God. And so these people follow Jesus up the mountainside, and they watch as he perhaps finds a large boulder or maybe just a comfortable spot on a hillside. And then they watch as Jesus sits down. And the minute he does that, their expectations skyrocket. They know that Jesus is about to teach them something authoritative. They are on the verge of hearing significant truth. Jesus sits down to emphasize to that audience the importance of everything he's about to say. And so who are these people that have followed Jesus up the mountainside? Who are these people who are going to have the privilege of hearing his very first sermon? Well, we know that his hand-picked disciples are there and there's this huge crowd. And what's particularly significant about this crowd is not just who's there, but who's not there. Based on what we know about the ancient world, and based on what we learn from the Bible, we can say with confidence that the people on this mountainside are not the political, religious, and economic leaders of that society. Those people are quite content with the existing religious and economic system because it equips them to enjoy life and to feel good about themselves. The, the, movers, in, and, excuse me, the movers and shakers in that culture... They feel blessed. 
because they have embraced their society's view of satisfaction and success. And so whatever Jesus is offering, they don't want and they don't think they need. And so the men and women with Jesus on that mountainside, they're everyday, common, ordinary people. They're there because they're hungry for spiritual truth. They're there because they're hungry for some hope. Many of them are from the working classes. Some of them are poor. Some of them are sick or handicapped or unemployed or homeless. In other words, a number of these people are the kind that polite society shuns. And all of these people have seen enough of Jesus and heard enough of Jesus to know that He sincerely cares for them. So Jesus sits down and He offers this group of spiritual seekers one of the most profound sermons ever delivered. And how does He begin? He begins with a blessing. Look at the start of the sermon. He said, that's Jesus, He said, Blessed are, blessed, blessed, blessed are. Now, those two simple words might not seem like much, but I believe they would have shocked His audience. They would have shocked this Jewish audience because they were used to hearing from teachers and prophets who usually gave them either commands or criticisms. For example, when Moses, speaking on God's behalf, issued the original law of God, it was a list of commands. Don't worship idols. Keep the Sabbath. Don't murder. And more. Command after command after command, rule after rule after rule. That's what the Jews were used to. And then over the centuries, as God sent them prophets, the Jewish prophets usually issued words of criticism and even impending judgment. Here's just a sampling of what these people were used to hearing. Isaiah Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. Jeremiah, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. Micah, the Lord is coming down from his dwelling place because of the sins of the people of Israel. And Jesus says, blessed are. He doesn't begin with a criticism, a judgment, a command. A rule, he begins with a blessing. And as we'll see in a moment, he's going to offer eight specific blessings to give these people hope and encouragement. His, his words of blessing will let them know that they may be marginalized in their society, they may be poor and needy, but they are not beyond the reach of Almighty God. And Jesus offers blessings because he wants these seekers to see God's presence as inviting and not threatening. And sadly, that seems to be something that every generation of Christians 
needs to relearn. There are way too many preachers and teachers who present God as perpetually stern and demanding and angry. And we know that God can get angry, but He never stays angry. He loves us. He delights to have people come into His presence. He wants to shower His blessings on people. And people who are far from God and disconnected from Him need to know that. Oh, they desperately need to know that. At our last church, there was a man who visited our services a couple of times. Then he asked to meet with me. And he said, I know my life's out of whack. I know I don't measure up to the expectations of God. And as I'm searching for him, it's really hard to visit church after church after church and week after week just be told how bad I am. Isn't there someone with a word of hope? He said, our church was inviting to him because it was the least angry church he'd ever been in. What a backhanded compliment. I didn't want us to be known as the least angry church. I wanted us to be known as a welcoming church where people could experience the blessings of God. And I'm glad this man found us, and I'm glad I had the privilege of baptizing him into Christ so he could begin a life in connection with Jesus and experience the rich blessings of God. But his story reminds me never to forget that Jesus loves to invite people into his presence so he can pour blessings upon them. And that's why he sits down and begins his very first sermon by offering blessings to this crowd. Blessings that offer them great hope and comfort. And yet, blessings that also have some challenge. The blessings that Jesus is about to offer contain a lot of challenge because with every word he speaks, he makes it clear that God's view of blessing is very different than the view of that first century world. And God's view of blessing is very different than ours. Let's look at these eight blessings. He said, Blessed, excuse me, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These blessings are called beatitudes. That comes from a Latin word that means Deep happiness. And some Bible translations even use the word happiness in this text instead of blessed. Uh, I think that misses the point though because happiness is a feeling and feelings can dissipate based on our circumstances. Jesus is not describing how we feel. He's describing a gift that God chooses to give us independent 
of our changing circumstances. Being blessed by God is vastly superior to simply feeling happy. And Jesus tells us here how people are blessed. People are blessed when they choose to embrace God's values rather than the values of our culture. You see, the Beatitudes summarize what some people call the upside-down kingdom of God. God takes our values, the values of our society and our culture, and He turns them on their head because His view of blessing is so radically different than ours. Specifically, the Jewish society of that day believed that blessing equals comfort and security and success. And in their world, The people listening to Jesus present this sermon mostly do not feel blessed based on the values of their culture. How can they be blessed if they're poor and needy, if they're sick and diseased? It's the people who didn't show up to hear Jesus, the well-off. They're the ones who feel blessed because they've got it made. And I don't think we're much different because we tend to measure blessing by that same yardstick. It's in those times when I feel safe and secure and satisfied that I'm most likely to say, I feel blessed. Jesus clearly is inviting us to look at blessing differently He tells us that we can be blessed even when we feel uncomfortable. We can be blessed when life is hard and difficult. He's telling us that blessing comes from God, not from our feelings or our comfortable circumstances. Now, as we try and dive in and understand some of the details of this passage, there actually are many ways to slice and dice what Jesus is saying. Bible commentators offer a variety of insights as to how we can grasp the significance of this message and apply it to our lives. In my view, there are two keys to understanding this passage. One is the audience, and two is Jesus' focus on the kingdom of God, or as he says quite often, the kingdom of heaven. Everything that he shares in this passage is designed to help people who are seeking God understand how they can get connected to God and become part of His kingdom. And then once they get connected to God, Jesus wants them to know how to live according to the values of God's kingdom rather than the values of their culture. So I don't think Jesus is giving us a list of random areas of life where we can feel blessed. I think He's describing how to become a disciple. He previously handpicked 12 men to travel with him and be his followers, and now he's opening up that invitation to the crowd. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Then learn how to embrace what God values, and you will be showered with blessings. And since discipleship is a process that unfolds over time. I see these eight blessings as progressive. 
I believe they follow one after another as we move over time from seeker to believer to disciple. Now to bring this down to a practical level and help us get a handle on this, I'd like us to consider these eight blessings from the viewpoint of a hypothetical woman in the crowd. Let's call her Hannah. In that society, Hannah is a second-class citizen because she's a woman and not a man. Because she's a woman, she's often separated and segregated from the men, which means she's not allowed to fully participate in the life of the faith community. And yet she's a spiritual seeker. She's hungry for God. That's why she's followed Jesus up onto that mountain. And so how does Jesus' sermon help someone like Hannah move closer to God? What might Hannah's life look like both now and in the future over the years ahead as she progressively embraces these blessings and becomes a disciple of Jesus? Well, the very first beatitude tells Hannah that she's blessed if she recognizes her spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit simply means that we recognize that we fall short of of what God expects. And we know that we cannot be made spiritually right by our own efforts. And so if Hannah recognizes that, then she's blessed. Blessing begins for Hannah when she recognizes that she needs something that only God can give her. I believe that Jesus is saying to Hannah and to every man or woman in that crowd, I know you feel spiritually overlooked. I know you feel apart from God and you recognize that you have nothing to offer God because He is holy and you are not. And yet if you know this about yourself, and you know this about God, then you're blessed because this is the beginning of the path to spiritual wholeness. This is how you become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And because our hypothetical woman Hannah recognizes that she's poor in spirit, then she's also willing to mourn her sin. She doesn't take lightly those actions she's engaged in that have been harmful to herself and harmful to others. And she regrets and grieves the brokenness of her life. And without such grief over her behavior, she cannot receive God's comfort and God's forgiveness. And because she understands her need for God, because she's willing to mourn her sinful behavior, it results in a meek and humble attitude. Meekness is so important. Because if we're full of pride, we'll never fully be able to hear God or respond to God or experience His blessing because pride prompts us to say, I'm worth it. I deserve it. I expect God to bless me. Meekness prompts us to say, I don't deserve anything from God. I recognize my need for His mercy. And I love the fact that Jesus includes meekness as part of these blessings because it's a vivid example of the upside-down values of God's kingdom. 
It is so contrary to the values of our culture. Our culture says that the world belongs to the successful, the powerful, and the influential. Our society believes that we gain the world through things like military triumphs and corporate takeovers and the acquisition of wealth or through the imposition of political power. And Jesus says all of that is such wrong thinking. The only way to inherit the earth is to submit to God. Meekness, not might, is what conquers in the kingdom of God because meekness helps save us from our own worst impulses. And in Jesus' comment here, as he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's pointing forward to that day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be populated by people who are meek and humble because they recognize their complete utter dependence upon God. Meekness is so critical. So our hypothetical Hannah recognizes her need for God. She mourns her sinful behavior. She adopts an attitude of humility. And God says to people like Hannah, you're blessed. She's blessed because people who adopt those kinds of attitudes, they develop an appetite for God, an ever-growing appetite. They develop a hunger and thirst for righteousness, which God promises to fill up. These are the attitudes and actions that bring us to God. These attributes summarized here in the first four Beatitudes are the entryway into a life of blessing. And then as we continue to experience God's blessing and as we draw ever closer to Him, He continually changes us. And over time, we increasingly value what He values. And we begin to live very differently in this world as summarized by the last four Beatitudes. We begin to live differently because righteous people, by definition, are different. Righteousness is a very interesting and important concept. And in the Bible, it has two primary expressions. One is moral, one is social. We tend to focus mostly on moral righteousness, which is all about me. We tend to overlook social righteousness, which is all about the community. When I pursue moral righteousness, I am asking the Holy Spirit to work in me to help me develop a more godly character. When I pursue social righteousness, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to work through me to help promote a more godly community. And so as I pursue righteousness, I become concerned, as the Bible admonishes me to do, I become concerned with the dignity and welfare of all individuals at every level of society, but particularly the poor and the marginalized and the downtrodden. And Within my sphere of influence, I strive to ensure that there's justice for everyone, not just for the powerful and influential. And so Hannah... As the years unfold, as she embraces these blessings offered by Jesus, she lives out her righteousness personally and in her community. She doesn't barricade herself off from her world, but she's willing to step into her messy society as an ambassador of Jesus. 
She strives to represent Jesus to people who are beat up by life. People who are suffering adversity and people who are just drowning in their own sinful behavior. And she intentionally looks for ways to extend God's mercy to such people. The mercy of aid, the mercy of care and comfort, the mercy of forgiveness. And Hannah strives to the best of her ability to deal with with everyone she meets sincerely, with a pure heart, which means she refuses to be manipulative. She refuses to adopt hidden agendas or ulterior motives. And she doesn't sow discord or become divisive in her relationships, but works hard to be a peacemaker in the model of Jesus. And so with the passing of time, as Hannah becomes an ever more devoted disciple, she continually grows and changes as a person. And she has an ongoing impact in her corner of God's world. And through all of this, she experiences the rich blessings of God. Because she's choosing to live by what he values, not by what her culture values. And in fact, she embraces these values of God's kingdom so strongly, these characteristics become such a vibrant and essential part of her life that even when people turn against her, she doesn't retaliate. She may be mocked, she may be treated unjustly, but she continues to respond as a merciful, thoughtful, honest peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can you respond to hate in that way? Hannah can do it because she's a disciple of Jesus. She stands with him. She stands for the values of Jesus. And she knows that while her society may ridicule and scorn her, Jesus is blessing her. It is a blessing that transcends circumstances. These eight statements of blessing from Jesus, they identify a pathway toward discipleship for every person in that crowd. Jesus is sharing this truth, and people then have to decide how they'll respond. Now, I've personalized these statements to our hypothetical Hannah, but it's important to realize that Jesus has not yet personalized his comments in any way. He's been speaking very generally, blessed are those, blessed are those. But something fascinating happens right at the end. When he gets to this topic of persecution, he suddenly changes his wording and he gets very focused and very personal. Look what happens in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I I think those final words must have been a tremendous jolt to that crowd. Instead of these general statements, blessed are those, blessed are those, now it's blessed are you. And blessed are you when you're persecuted. It's a very pointed comment, and it's designed to get everyone's attention. 
As Jesus looks out over this crowd seated close by are his 12 hand-picked disciples and he wants them to know and he wants everyone in this crowd to know if they want to be a disciple, then this final blessing will apply to them. They will be insulted. They will be victims of false accusations. They will be persecuted. And everyone who chooses to endure that for the sake of Jesus will be blessed. Now, how can someone really be both harassed and blessed? That's certainly not the view of our society. I think the only way to make sense of this is to view life from an eternal perspective. To truly trust that this life is not all there is. To truly believe that there is life and hope beyond the grave and that there is an eternal destiny of joyful happiness that waits for every follower of Jesus. And when we believe that and know that and trust that, then we can endure the unfair and unjust harassments of life. Knowing that God blesses us when we put our faithfulness to Him ahead of our comfort, ahead of our security, ahead of our popularity, and perhaps even ahead of our very lives. Now, Jesus is not telling us to celebrate when we're persecuted. He's not asking us to be masochists. And we don't rejoice that we're suffering. We rejoice that our suffering is not the result of our own arrogance or foolishness or stupidity. We rejoice simply and solely because we're suffering as followers of Jesus. And as we suffer, we know that we're suffering as He suffered. And like Him, we rejoice that the kingdom of heaven awaits. These kingdom values, when we embrace them, they can remake us and remold us and allow us to live very differently from our culture. And we need to know that our culture, for the most part, will not model nor celebrate these kingdom values. They're not interested in these kinds of blessings proclaimed here by Jesus. I remember back in college reading the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's a prime example of everything that this is not. Nietzsche actually grew up in a Christian environment. He was the son and grandson of pastors. But he turned his back on Christianity. He rejected Christianity. He rejected everything that Jesus Christ stood for, and he had a particular hatred for the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't see anything good in this message. His definition of good was anything that promoted the acquisition of power. And therefore, any sympathy for the weak and needy was bad. And in his view, nothing was more unhealthy than Christian concern for the poor. And tragically, our modern world has embraced a whole lot of Nietzsche's philosophy, whether people realize it or not. Our society values power and position and prestige, but the upside-down kingdom of God has a different set of priorities. And if we want to follow Jesus and experience the richness 
of the life of faith, then your values and my values must be continually transformed. And that transformation begins right here. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, with these eight incredibly rich, beautiful blessings offered to all men and women by Jesus Christ. Now, the truth of what Jesus says can be jarring because living according to these values isn't easy. And so we have a choice. We can run away from this or we can respond. We can see it for what it is, an incredible invitation to step into the great adventure of living by faith. These blessings are an invitation to follow Jesus, the Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who knows what's best for us, the Jesus who always has our best interests at heart, to follow Him rather than blindly follow our narcissistic culture, which only will consume us. Jesus knows our shortcomings. He understands our brokenness. And he's not repelled by it. He loves us and he wants to shower us with blessings. But it's clear from the Beatitudes, his idea of blessing isn't to shower us with necessarily with a lot of stuff or with the perfect job or the perfect family or with financial security. He's not going to bless us based on the world's values, but based on his values. He makes it so clear here that the blessed life only can be experienced in the kingdom of God. And when we embrace the values of His kingdom, that's when He will fill us to the brim and He will richly bless us in this life and in the next.